There was once a school system in a, in a large city that had a program that could help children keep up with their homework if they were sick or hospitalized. One day, one of the teachers who was assigned to this program was given the name of a little boy in the hospital that she needed to go and see. And so she went to the hospital and found his room number and got his name and, and, and went to the room. And she had been told as she, before she arrived that uh, she needed to help him with his nouns and adverbs. And she walks into the room only to discover that no one told her that the little boy she was visiting had been severely burned and was in a great deal of pain. And at that moment, she wondered if nouns and adverbs really mattered at all. But she decided that she was sent to do a job and she was going to do it. So she and the boy began their lessons. She left feeling a little disappointed and feeling like she probably didn't help him at all and being more than a, a little bit sad over the condition of the child. She came back the next day though it was her job and she was going to go back and she was going to do it. And she came back the next day and immediately one of the nurses met her and said, what did you do to that boy? And she said, well, I, I didn't do anything. I was sent to teach him his nouns and adverbs and that's, that's all we did. And the nurse says, no, no, you, you, you don't understand. We've been worried about, it, about him. Uh, we've been worried that the boy wouldn't make it. But ever since yesterday, his whole attitude has changed. He's fighting back and responding to treatment. It's as though he's decided to live. Two weeks later, the boy explained that he had completely given up hope until the teacher arrived. Everything changed when he came to a simple realization. They wouldn't send a teacher to work on nouns and adverbs with a dying boy, would they? Sometimes uh, we feel like the dying boy. Uh, we go through certain trials and temptations and struggles and you think this is it. I'm not going to survive it. It's over. I'm done. And what we hear in this epistle of 1 Peter tonight is that there is actually a hope that Christians have that no matter, no matter how badly you are burned, no matter how bad it may look from your perspective, you are not going to die. In fact, you are going to live forever. And in this Easter season, as we look at the resurrection we look tonight to 1 Peter as uh, the resurrection as our hope. And so three things I want to look at. I want to look at hope's foundation, suffering's purpose, and faith's vision. Uh, there is no hope outside of the promise of the graciousness of God through Jesus Christ in our life. And there is no evidence or proof of that except in the resurrection. Jesus made certain claims about himself. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the one who was sent to die for the sins of the world. And sure enough, he was killed. And three days later, he rose from the dead. If he had been lying, God would not have raised him up. And so all of his actions and words were affirmed in the act of his bodily resurrection. And that is the foundation of our hope. Now, Peter is writing to a group of, of believers. He calls them in the opening uh, of the book. He calls them the, the um, um, elect who are in exile. The elect who are in exile. And he lists a bunch of cities. All happen to be in Asia Minor. It is likely that these Christians are mostly Jewish Christians, possibly some Gentile Christians. 
probably dispersed in A.D. 70 when the Romans came through and leveled Jerusalem and started scattering people. His audience, the recipients of this letter, were refugees. They were scattered by war and they had nothing. They had uh, to rebuild their lives somewhere else. And so he's writing these words of encouragement to a people who are kind of at the bottom who've come to the place where the only thing they have left is Jesus Christ. He writes to them in the context of of Judaism, coming out of Judaism. And he writes to them of a hope that they can only have in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now there are so much in those verses. I could preach a whole sermon just there. But I've got about seven verses to cover, nine verses. So we're not going to do that. But here's what I want you to see. That he starts his conversation with these recipients, reminding them not of what they've lost, but reminding them of what they still have. And he can offer them more than the Jewish system they were coming out of could offer them. There was a contemporary to the apostles, a rabbi named uh, Joe, <laughs> it's an old Hebrew name, Jokanan ben Zaki. He was a contemporary of the apostles. He was called the lamp of Israel and the strong hammer. He was a good man. He was, by any standard, particularly Jewish standards, a righteous man. He was well-respected in Israel. He wept when his pupils came to his deathbed to receive a final blessing from their dying master. When asked why he wept, he answered, There are two ways before me, the one to the Garden of Eden and the other to hell, and I do not know which way they lead me. How can I help but weep? A good man, under the law, does not know what's going to happen to him when he dies. A few hundred years later, in 290 AD, another Jewish rabbi, Jokanan ben Napaka, says this. uh, When he died, he asked to be buried neither in white clothes nor black, but in neutral shades, so that he would not be ashamed if he were given a place among the righteous or among sinners. Another righteous man who doesn't know where he's going when he dies. And so Peter begins this conversation with these Christians who've lost everything, reminding them that, in fact, they've actually lost nothing at all that matters, that they still have within them a great assurance. And it is an assurance based first and solely and only on the mercy and grace of God. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope, a living hope a reference to the resurrection. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, raised to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. He's using language there in in, in those three terms of uh, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, referring to something that never dies, something that is morally and ritually pure, and a glory that never fades. He's using religious language to refer to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The the hope that you have, Christian, 
No matter what it is you're going through, no, no matter what grade you got on that last test, no matter what job you just lost, no matter the state of your marriage or the condition of your relationships or that friendship that broke apart, if you are in Christ, you have something that supersedes all of that. And that is not to say that those things are not important. It is simply to say that you have not lost the one thing that does matter. The one thing that never dies. The one sacrifice that is morally and righteous, right, ritually pure. A perfect sacrifice and a glory that never, ever fades. And it's kept in heaven for you. It's not something, this, this thing that we Christians have, it's not something that we necessarily see here and now. In fact, probably we only get the tiniest glimpses of it. But he's reminding them that because of the resurrection of Jesus, because of the things that Jesus said and did, we can be assured that all those promises given to us are kept for us. There was once a Scotsman who, being a typical Scotsman, and I hope I offend, don't offend any Scotsman in the room, um, but being a, being a stereotypical Scotsman, he did not want to spend a lot of money on his own grave marker. So when he died, he had a very simple grave marker placed that said one word, kept. And in that one word, he acknowledged the one truth that should carry us through all the trials and temptations. That all that we have been promised in Jesus Christ is being held and kept for us by the power of God. And you may lose everything else, but you will never lose that. Because it is kept and you are kept because of the power of Jesus Christ. And so hope has a foundation. It isn't a blind hope. It isn't a blind leap of faith. It is a hope and a faith that is based on a historical reality that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And that God-man being raised from the dead changed the course of history and changes the way the cosmos operates and everything is being rewritten. And so to these Christians, these beleaguered Christians, he says, you may have lost everything, but you really haven't lost anything. You still have it. God is still with you. But he goes on to talk a little bit about their suffering, to give their suffering a, a perspective and, and a shape and a form. In this you rejoice, in this, in this truth of, of being kept. In this you rejoice... Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may, not, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, he's giving these, these Christians coming out of a Jewish context a new way to understand suffering. And the, under the old covenant... Bad people were punished, and good people were rewarded. You, you were faithful to God, and you received reward. You were unfaithful, you received punishment. But the Jews around the time of Jesus, they began to have a problem. They, they couldn't answer the Job question. Why are good people suffering? Why are good people suffering? And they, they, some rabbis, and many at the time, developed a theology of suffering to try to explain why people, why good righteous people, were still suffering. And what they came up with 
was, was sort of a, a simple little system that, that ultimately fell apart. What they began to say is that if you are suffering, it is because you are righteous. Righteous people suffer. And suffering is a gift of God given to the suffering so that you can earn off and pay back the sins you've done, right? So because you're a good person, God's going to give you a chance here and now to suffer and do penance and pay off all your sins. And eventually, if you suffer enough, like this is really good because you're really burning off a lot of sin penalties now, right? You're just, you're earning them off. They're getting knocked off, man. That guy, he got his hand cut off. Boy, that's like six points, man, right? Like you, you, you're, you're getting your, the more you suffer, the more your sins are getting washed away. And their hope was that eventually the scale would tip. And instead of, instead of all of your evil and sin being counted against you, eventually you, you would just start to have your righteousness counted for you because you've suffered so much that everything's just gone. There are a couple of problems with this. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a couple problems with this. Uh, one is, is that it could explain why uh, good people suffered, but it couldn't explain why good things happened to good people. Because in this way of thinking, you suffered because you were good, and the, right, the unrighteous received reward, and they were going to have to pay all of it off in eternity, right? So if a good person was receiving reward, well, they must not really be good. So they could account for the bad stuff happening, but they couldn't account for the good stuff happening. The, the second um, problem is that it was dependent upon, again, the righteousness of the human being to actually like work all this off and to maintain faith. And it became a really, again, an increased burden that they could not stand up under. Now, here's the interesting thing. I've actually known Christians who actually kind of followed a version of this theology. If I'm suffering, it's because I'm righteous. Most of the time I look at them and say, no, it's because you're a jerk. <laughs> you're suffering because people don't like being around you. <laughs> it isn't because of Jesus. Um, and so you can see how there's this weird self-righteousness that could creep into all this. So it's, it's in this context that Peter is writing to these Christians and he's giving them a new paradigm for understanding suffering. Their suffering has probably nothing to do with what they've done or haven't done. That isn't to say that there aren't consequences for things we do. Sometimes if you drink and drive and get in a wreck, that's on you. But if you're struck with cancer, that is not on you. And that is not because you've done something to deserve it. The, the things that happen to us that we have no control over, it's not because of anything we did or didn't do. These beleaguered Christians who've lost everything are not being punished. It is, as Peter says, necessary in the mind of God for them to go through this. And we don't know why. We don't know why. He gives them a new way of understanding that suffering is what God uses, not for us to pay him back, not for us to earn anything, but for us to be shaped and formed and molded. It isn't what we are doing, it's what he's doing to us. I got in a debate with a friend one time about the nature of sanctification, and he really wanted to say that we were completely in control of our sanctification, that, that we become more holy when we choose to be more holy. 
But what he neglected to understand is that some God, sometimes God sends things upon us to make us more holy, and we have nothing to do with it and would rather not have it. There have been plenty of times in my life where I can look back and, and things hit me like a truck. And I didn't want it, and I wanted it to go away. But I look back on it, and at each of those points, I can say that God was guiding me and changing me and molding me to make me who I am now. And, and the truth is, there have been events in my life that I wish never happened, but if they had not happened, I would not be standing right here with you now. And I don't regret that they happened. The cultural commentator and satirist Malcolm Muggeridge said this, Contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experience, experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my experience has been through affliction and not through happiness. I suspect that if we're honest, that's true all of us. That God, when we engage the trials and the temptations by faith, they work beautiful things in us. Even though while we're going through it, it's absolutely horrible. And so it's easy for us to say, the world is not as it should be. Kind of a no-brainer. The world is not as it should be. But the hard part about being a Christian is understanding that the world is, not, is also not what it appears to be. The world is not as it should be, but it is not what it appears to be. It appears often, too often, that God is nowhere present, that things are out of control. Frankly, I feel like we've come to this place where we live in crazy town. I, 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 I don't understand everything that's going on in the world or in our country right now. And it's frustrating and it's difficult. There's a little folk story that maybe helps illustrate a point. There were once two traveling angels who went about visiting people. And these two angels went to this beautiful large mansion and knocked on the door and they were hungry and tired and needed a place to sleep. And this wealthy man stuck them in a dank basement and threw, throw them, threw them some crumbs to eat and left them in the dank basement for the night. And while the angels were there, one of them the elder of the two angels saw a hole in the wall in the basement and he decided to patch it up. They left that home the next day without much fanfare and they made their way to a, a poor farmer's home. And they asked the same. They asked for a place to stay and a meal to eat. And he gave them the best that they had from their one cow. The next morning, they awoke to find that this family's only cow was dead. The junior angel says to the elder, I don't understand why you would fix the hole in the wall of a rich man's house and not save the only cow that belonged to this poor family. And the elder angel says to him, when we were in the home of the rich family, as I looked in that hole, I saw a, a room full of gold that they had forgotten about in this old mansion of a house. And since this owner seemed to care only for gold, I decided he shouldn't have it. And so I blocked up the hole so he couldn't see it. And last night, when we were here with this poor farmer, the angel of death came, and he wanted to take the farmer's wife, but I convinced him instead to take their cow. The truth is, you don't know what's happening in the supernatural background of your life. When you're going through trials and temptations and struggles, 
You know what you see, but what you see is not what it is. There's something else going on that you, this side of eternity, will probably never know or understand. But one of the things that Peter promises his people is that there is a salvation being preserved for them, and one day it will all become clear. And one day they will know. And so the world is not as it should be. Your world is not as it should be. The struggles you have in your life, whatever they may be, personal sin issues, relationship issues, job issues, psychological or emotional issues, whatever they are, that's not all there is. There's something else going on in the background, and we as Christians can be assured that God is working. And so to live in faith in in the midst of suffering and trial and temptation, we first have to have an expectation for the future, to know that there is more coming than what is right in front of us. We have to have trust in the present, that no matter what I'm going through, God is working it out for me, for what is best for me. And patience in the waiting, because it is highly unlikely that you will see the full glory of God this side of eternity in your life. But that is not to say that yet you can't experience a little bit bit of it now, here and now. Verse 8, Peter says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. One of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes Our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. When infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. You know, one of the reasons why I think we're, we're tempted to lose faith when we go through trials is not because the trials in and of themselves are particularly cruel, but because the trials uh, somehow poke at our pride and the sense that we deserve something. Uh, I'm not talking about the the hard struggles of life, illness and death and disease and abuse. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like the normal stuff, like money issues. And we're tempted to think God has abandoned me because I don't have enough money in my checkbook. Because somehow we think that God's blessing is connected to our checkbook. Or, or um, you know, all my friends are, are angry with me and therefore I'm, I'm suffering for Jesus. And, and again, it's possible that you're just a jerk. Um, we, we have this idea that we deserve certain things. And we lose faith when we don't get those things that we deserve. And the truth is, God never promised us any of it. Never promised us any of it. These Christians, Peter's Christians, they lost everything except the one thing that mattered. And it may well be that God is in the process of stripping away those little mud pies that you're making because you think these little things you're making are the things that are really going to make you happy. And he's stripping them away so that you can finally look up and experience what a holiday at the sea looks like. And maybe you'll get just a glimpse of it. I'm reminded of when we visit my in-laws in Florida, they live about a mile from the beach as the crow flies. You gotta take a lot of roads to get there. But as the crow flies, they're a mile from the beach. And, and, And 
on just the perfect evening, you can sit on their porch and you can hear the ocean. You can hear it coming from a mile away. You can hear the waves. And you can experience being at the seaside even though you're not actually at the seaside. And there is a way in which we as Christians, when we come in faith and walk through trials in faith, and we come to hear the word preached, and we come to the Lord in prayer, and we come to the table together, that we get to hear the far-off sound of glory. The, the far-off sound of what is going to be, even if it isn't right now. And so we participate in anticipation and by faith in the glory of God right now together. We are not simply burned little children in the hospital with no hope. God has sent a Savior to us to tell us that it is not over. And whatever it is that you're going through will pass. Because there's a glory waiting for you out there. And maybe, just maybe, we can get to the point in our lives where we can say with Martin Luther this quote. If we consider the greatness and the glory of the life we shall have when we have risen from the dead, it would not be difficult at all for us to bear the concerns of this world. If I believe the word, I shall on the last day, after the sentence has been pronounced, not only gladly have suffered ordinary temptations, insults, and imprisonment, but I shall also say, oh, that I did not throw myself under the feet of all the godless for the sake of the great glory which I now see revealed and which has come to me through the merit of Christ. 